Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge podcast. Today, our guest is Representative Sonia Galvanese, a Democrat in Idaho's house and a Title I intervention teacher at Boise's Whittier Elementary School. We chatted last week, the Friday after the 2023 legislative session officially ended, and she was already back at her school. We talk about what it's like to be an educator and legislator, her thoughts on the session, and how Latinas are underrepresented in education leadership positions. Here's our conversation. All right, so thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm really excited and grateful to have you, especially since the session just officially ended yesterday, and I'm sure you're exhausted, so thank you. Absolutely, glad to be here. So I wanted to have you on the show because as far as I know, you're the only active teacher who's currently a legislator as well. And I just thought you might have a really interesting perspective about how you manage that all, why you wanted to go into politics, your thoughts on the session, um, and all that. So before we get into all those details, can you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background, um, your childhood, some of your family history that you were mentioning earlier? Sure. Um, With respect to teachers and the session. I am not the only one. Matt Bundy, Representative Bundy from Mountain Home, is mm-hmm. actually a high school government teacher mm-hmm. and he's in the legislature, uh, legislature as well. But yes, yeah. I am the only, I'm the only elementary school teacher mm-hmm. that that's currently serving. So it's just us two and we're, we're both on the house side. Mm-hmm. But my background, so I'm an Idaho kid. I was born and raised in the Silver Valley So the panhandle of Idaho is where I grew up and my family, my parents are both from Arizona. My father was a migrant worker in Southern Arizona, um, picking cotton from the age of three. And so he came, he was tired of the desert and tired of the heat. And when he was older, came to North Idaho to work in the mines. So I'm a miner's kid. And I grew up up there and we had a small family business as well. And um, it was a wonderful childhood, just growing up outside, a very classic Idaho upbringing um, of fishing and hunting and being outside most of the day. I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for my childhood. And now I see the value of it Mm -hmm. more than ever of those experiences that I had as a kid. Yeah, absolutely. So... I'm curious about what made you want to go into teaching in the first place. So can you talk about that a little bit and then just tell us about your teaching career, where all you've been and what you've done? Yes, absolutely. So I thought I would go into politics, actually, as funny as that sounds and the full circle my life has taken. I, I was convinced I was going to be a lobbyist or do some sort of work for dealing with immigrant law um, or being able to sort of advocate for the underdog, those who were underrepresented or underserved. And so I was interested in maybe lobbying for different organizations seeking to bring justice to those communities. And that was directly related to the narrative I had grown up with and knowing my aunts and uncles and the struggles that they had, even being U.S. citizens, but being migrant workers their entire lives and their experience as second-class citizens in this country. Um, 
were, were heartbreaking. And so I thought that was something I could do for other communities that, you know, I wanted to work with underserved communities. And so as I started along that path, you know, early, that's when I came to Boise in the mid nineties to go to school. And as I started in those classes, just life circumstance and a few other things found, I found myself nudging towards education. I had volunteered with a migrant labor camp in Caldwell Farmway Village doing a summer library program. And I did that to make, to keep my Spanish up. So I was doing that working with kids and working in family literacy programs to be able to use Spanish. And as I was working more with the community, I saw what literacy meant to the families and being able to read and write created in English, created a point of access and opportunity that they hadn't had. And I saw that same pull for advocating and working with underserved communities, how I could do that through education. And so I took a couple education courses to see how, see if it was a good fit. And as my dad would say, it was like a duck to water. I, I knew right then that was my calling and everything sort of lined up. I could still advocate and work with underserved communities. I could still work towards justice and representation within the Latino community in Idaho, which I had a personal connection to with my family. And then I, I felt that calling to be able to work with kids and, and work with families in particular. And so I've next year will be 20 years doing this work. Awesome. Yeah, that's a long career already, for sure. Um, and now you are at Whittier Elementary in Boise. And tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now, the, the Title I work. Sure. So I've only ever worked in Title I schools. Again, that's a deliberate move to continue to work with underserved communities. Mm -hmm. Title I has to do with socioeconomic status of the families. And so Title I schools receive additional federal funding because of that disadvantage um, with being low income. And so low income schools is where my heart is. I feel like we get the most bang for our buck here. It's um, with working with these families. And so I, when I decided to run for the legislature, I had to really think and pray on if I could leave a classroom of kids, just knowing the way I teach and how closely I work with the families and the students. And so I decided to take a new position at Whittier Elementary, which would be a Title I interventionist. So I still work with student groups, but really trying to work and plan with teachers how to maximize differentiation and creating access points for all students. But because of my Spanish speaking background, I'm able to work alongside the dual immersion program and those teachers and help them with their planning and co-teaching. And then I'm able to run the STEM program here. So at Whittier, kids go to library, PE, music, and STEM, a particular passion for. And so it's been, it's been a good it's been a good fit. I'm grateful to be here. Mm -hmm. So I was just talking to um, Whittier's principal yesterday, and she was telling me about the school, and I hadn't known a lot about it before, but it's got a pretty interesting model. So they have a dual immersion track for students. So currently, it sounds like that means, like, you know, maybe Monday, the, the kids in that track take Spanish all their classes in Spanish, Tuesday all in English, Wednesday in Spanish, right? Correct. Uh, 
And then there's another track at the school where they could do like a co-teaching model. Is that right? So not all the kids there are necessarily in the dual immersion program. That's correct. So there's a dual language track, kindergarten through sixth grade to where there's two teachers, one that is a native Spanish speaker doing the Spanish immersion and then the English side and then the co-teaching track would be like the traditional just English only track that's also in that grade level. And we also have pre-K um, at our school and we have special ed pre-K. So we have pretty robust programs here. It's a large school. We have just over 600 kids. Mm -hmm. So when you were growing up in North Idaho, well, first of all, was Spanish spoken inside your home? Minimal Spanish was spoken inside the home, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. A lot of commands or mandatos, so mm -hmm. like, you know, sit down, be quiet, mm -hmm. quit hitting your brother, mm -hmm. <laughs> things like that. Those were those were commands given in Spanish and, and it was always in the background with the with my father's side of the family, mm -hmm. but never conversational Spanish because my mother uh, does not speak Spanish. And okay. so it was that's why. So it was mm -hmm. English predominantly English. And so I felt robbed of that portion of, of the culture that I had grown up with so strongly, a very bicultural home, but I didn't have the conversational Spanish. And so I started taking language acquisition, Spanish language acquisition really seriously in high school. Mm -hmm. And I took as many years as I could. And then I continued on in at the university level in college. And it was my father's advice to quit taking Spanish classes and just go work with the community, mm -hmm. you know, because there's only so much you can do with formal Spanish and book mm -hmm. Spanish. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I started working with at the labor camp down here in Caldwell to advance my Spanish. And it was through that experience that led me to education. So it, it was it was good serendipity of where I was trying to increase my Spanish language and making sure I had conversational Spanish as well, and it led me to become a teacher where I could use it more and more. So I'm grateful for that mm -hmm. continued opportunity. So I'm wondering what a program like Whittier's would have meant to you as a young kid if you had gotten an, an opportunity like that. And to have so much diversity. I know Whittier's a really diverse school where languages spoken by students include English, Spanish, Swahili, I think, and there was a fourth one, um, Arabic. Oh, so, yeah, we have many more than that. We have over 15 languages spoken at Whittier mm -hmm. just because we are an English language learning school as well. Different sites around Boise, they serve our refugee, immigrant, and new-to-country community. Mm -hmm. And so various schools will have refugees from the Ukraine, from the Middle East, from West Africa, from Southeast Asia, from Central America. So Whittier has numerous languages spoken. We have some of our families from the Ukraine. We have families from Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan. There are several languages spoken in Africa. So you have different African dialects. So French from the Congo. So lots of different languages. It's it's very diverse here and hearing kids be able to speak together as a community and really that their mother tongues are celebrated and we really recognize and elevate that diversity among them is, is a beautiful thing to see. Mm -hmm. 
So as a kid, what would that have meant for you to been able to go to a school with so much diversity, a chance to learn two languages? That would have been fantastic. I, I wish there would have been bilingual schools or access to that in North Idaho. North Idaho is tends to be more homogenous in, in places, and is particularly the Silver Valley where I was growing growing up. It's a small mining community, still is, you know, the the after the mines left the valley and the uh, that really hit the community hard because that was the major economy. That was the the income of of the valley. And so they have some with tourism now and trying to promote folks going there, especially in the winter. But I believe I'm trying to think growing up, I think I was the only Latina in school all, all growing up, just there, there wasn't the diversity up there. And so we didn't have access to bilingual or dual immersion programs. It has been great to see that dual language and bilingual schools are becoming not common, but more accessible. We've seen, you know, there's some that are in Blaine County there. We have schools in CUNA. Jerome, Idaho just opened another one recently. And so I'm grateful to see that those opportunities are increasing, particularly in those um, dense population areas where we know the Latino community lives. I think it's a it's a service to the whole community. It allows children to maintain their first language and become biliterate, right? Where they can read and write and communicate in it, but then also extends the same opportunity to English speaking students to where these kiddos are gonna be able to exit the program and be fully bilingual, bicultural, biliterate. And what an, op what an opportunity for them as they go through their education and become that much more marketable that they know what it is to speak and read and associate um, with another culture. I think it's it's incredible and it's fun to see kids learning Spanish, these children that come from English speaking homes and how invested the families are. That's really cool because it takes you've got to buy in fully to an immersion program because there's going to be that that tension as you're learning another language and it's frustrating, right? When mm -hmm. it's not your when it's not your primary home language, but I see the kids persevere and to see kids fourth, fifth and sixth grade holding English only kids that, you know, grew up in an English speaking home, be able to fully communicate in Spanish and hold a conversation with their Spanish speaking peers and staff is really fun to watch. Okay. So let's move on to you making the decision to run for the house and become a representative. Sure. Why did you decide to do that? And I was wondering if there were any fears that you had about taking that route. So I decided to run for the House of Representatives based on a really damaging narrative that was being promoted at the highest levels of our state office in Idaho. I think, you know, it was during the pandemic that at the beginning of the pandemic, teachers were heroes. If you can remember back just a few years, we, you know, we weren't paid enough and I can't believe this is what teachers do all day when families had to suddenly become teachers or conduits for their, you know, for their children's education. And then within a year's time, all of a sudden teachers were villains and there was this narrative of critical race theory and indoctrination, you know, being promoted here in Idaho and 
you know, at being an educator for almost two decades now, we're used, we're used to feeling social pressures and getting some attacks. I don't know if it's part of, you know, par for the course of being in this profession, but it felt particularly damaging and it felt particularly dangerous because of who was saying it. So we had people in very high positions at the state and state government that were creating an indoctrination task force to examine, you know, and expose teachers for nefarious acts. And I could not stand by any longer. And so I've, I've been very active in my teachers association and active in my community and on several different, you know, boards and nonprofits. But I thought, what else can I do to help educate the public on what we actually do in the classroom, what families mean to us, how we address curriculum and the needs of students. And in the district where I was living, uh, there was gonna be an open seat for the House of Representatives. And so I ran. Did anyone suggest to you to do that or did you come up with that, that idea on your own? Oh, I came up with it on my own. <laughs> you know, I think it. I went to several education stakeholders and peoples whose opinion I hold dear went to them first like what do you think what would this i was more concerned with would my voice or whatever i brought to the table be value added to the conversation you know i'm always wondering how can i best serve my community how can i best serve the families i care so deeply about in education how can i best serve my students my kids and so I, I consulted with probably a dozen different people to make sure it was going to be the best, best decision, you know, for that seat, because it's hard to run for office, right? It, it's hard. I had no guarantee of how it was going to turn out. And I just, I just so badly wanted to serve public education in this way. And it's, it's been, it's been and continues to be my North Star. So everything that I do and the conversations I have, policy we bring, policy we support, I think, how does this impact schools? What can we do to protect and elevate that which we do as public educators? And it's really important. So I'm grateful. Were there any small voices in your head that were, you know, making you worried about certain things about running? Like, for example, I think some people don't run because you are really put into center stage with a spotlight on you. And, um, yeah, you, your family, you're all under a magnifying glass. And that can really dissuade people from running. Did thoughts like that ever enter your head? Oh, sure. You know, I thought about it and I've seen, you know, the attacks of different folks online and there's a lot of special interest groups and money and efforts outside of Idaho that make its way into Idaho politics and they really target people and beat them up online. And so I considered I considered all of that, but I I refuse to be bullied. <laughs> well, I guess I could try to think of another word. I refuse to be bullied by folks that number one, have no idea what we do in the classroom. Number two, are no stakeholder at the public education table in my mind. And, and those who often are outside of the state of Idaho um, telling us what's best for our state and, and our schools. And so I just, I refuse to subscribe to that notion that I 
didn't have a right to be there or that um, or that a public educator you know couldn't contribute to public education policy so i wanted to push back against that narrative and so i did worry about public scrutiny but again i've got almost two decades in in public education i'm 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 not unfamiliar with scrutiny and people making broad judgments about a, a profession they know very little about and so i was familiar with that but i continue just to you try to stay the course, do the right thing, be transparent and with the work that you're doing, um, stay connected to your constituents, you know, create a channel for them to access you and ask questions. And it, it, it's worked out, I, but I don't want to live in fear of, of those who are naysayers. And I think as an Idahoan, this is my home. It's worth fighting for. So I don't want to be driven out by special interest groups outside of the state. This is my home, so. Well, one thing I was wondering about is how how you've kind of made it all work balancing the legislative work with teaching because this current session that just ended yesterday was 88 days long. And mm -hmm. as a teacher, that would be really hard to step away from the classroom for that long because you'd have to make all those lesson plans for your kids. Mm -hmm. You'd have to find a long-term substitute that you trusted and felt like had expertise. And then, you know, I'd be worried about the relationship loss over that time period with kids. And it's hard for kids. Like, they need stability, so that could be really jarring for them. And you had said earlier that some of those things kind of played into your choice to um, still be a teacher, but in this Title I interventionist role instead of a a typical classroom teacher. So can you talk about that a little bit? And that's, you're exactly right. I did take a different type of teaching position, particularly for that reason of consistency, especially in Title I schools, all kids need consistency, but there's a, a very um, intentional effort to make sure we are the most consistent in Title I schools where some kids have pretty vulnerable backgrounds and may have challenges and struggles in their home life that is outside of our control. So we wanna make sure that we are ever present. So by me taking a position that allowed some more flexibility, so I still have student groups, I still had to have a sub, I still had to have sub plans for those various student groups that I was meeting with. I still had to do quite a bit of evening planning. So it would be a very long day at the Capitol and I would still come into school to make sure the STEM program had what they needed or I needed to buy the materials for the thematic unit happening in STEM the following week. I'd often come in on the weekends and make sure things were okay and that the materials were ready for student groups and for the STEM classes the following week. And it just, you just get into a routine of it. And I was still managing emails and phone calls in between committee meetings and floor sessions or in between, um, you know, caucus meetings and political conversations. Still part of my brain and my heart was still in at school, right? There's no turning that off. I think as, as an educator, you're always still one foot in the school because that's, that's the reason I ran in the first place. And so I wanted to still stay connected. So it was, it was tricky. So I'm grateful to be back to 
one day job <laughs> back back in the yeah. classroom back with the students and not have to worry so much no kidding and that's the thing about teaching I'm sure this is true in some other professions as well but definitely with teaching like if a teacher's going to take a sick day or a vacation day or have an extended leave like you you don't just walk away you still are constantly doing work because you have to prepare things for the person who's doing your job and that creates a lot of work in and of itself so with this session ending yesterday um let's take a look back and reflect well first personally how are you doing are you just exhausted at this point i am tired <laughs> a different kind of tired that i didn't know existed there's a there's a term amongst teachers that we call like teacher tired when you're teacher tired usually during like parent teacher conference week where you're you know you've had to prep all the report cards and the comments and then you have you know face-to-face -face conferences with 30 different sets of parents and families and stuff and you and you love it and it's good work but you're teacher tired you go home and just sort of collapse on on the couch and so that's kind of the tired i'm feeling right now where it's just been so many days of 12 13 hour days um and so i didn't i didn't take any time off from the end of session and coming back to the classroom so i know some folks they take sort of a transition week off you know to reacclimate back to the day job but i so badly missed school i so badly missed working with kids and so i didn't take any time off i just jumped back in so i i will enjoy sleeping in this weekend for sure just give myself a little bit of rest but I'm, I'm grateful to be back it's a good tired to to have i'm i'm grateful to be um connected with the students again and doing work alongside teachers mm -hmm. and looking back at the legislation and the policy that was created what do you see as some of the biggest successes and failures for education this session so, I mean, the, the funding increase for schools and for teachers, I think, is a huge success. You know, we had started the session knowing that none of us could go home unless we brought back some property tax relief. And so I'll connect, you know, connecting that to schools, the property tax bill that ended up becoming at the forefront, House Bill 292, but had the $100 million going to schools for uh, to buy down their bonds. So I think that's in that's a success. I'm grateful for that. I mean, we had mid-March while we were still in session, um, the March election date for bonds and levies across the state and where we see levies are passing, you know, by and large, the majority of levies, but bonds are failing. 70% of the bonds failed and there was a billion dollars worth of um, bonds that were put out to the community. And I think people need to, again, continue to realize that we can't say schools are every, ever fully funded until we address that issue, because the additional funding it takes to address deferred maintenance or you know the growth and development of a district, because we have so many people coming into Idaho, we continually are reaching out to the taxpayers to fund that bill. And so when you have your bonds fail, the school has to do something. The schools are still falling down. We still need an additional high school to meet the needs. So I, I'm grateful that part of that tax, property tax relief bill is going to help the school bonds and schools with um, just their, their buildings growth and, and accommodate for growth. We were also able you know, to pass the launch 
program. So that extent that was the part of the governor's proposal where it extends an existing program to allow high schoolers and adults access $8,000 towards career technical programs to two year institutions or our, our colleges and um, various workforce development. So I'm excited about that because being a teacher for they're all my kids, right? I mean, fifth grade has been the grade that I've taught the longest. And so 10 and 11 year olds, but I being a teacher for 20 years, I have kids who have graduated college and have kids of their own. And so I see that access point, particularly for the community that I serve, where that additional help is going to mean all the difference if they can access a tech program or CWI you know, or some of these are two-year institutions, that's going to be really important. I'm grateful. And that passed by a small margin, as I'm sure you know, the House Bill 24. So grateful for that. Also, the increased salary for teachers, the um, appropriations bill that came towards the latter part of the session, that's going to be awesome. So I think it's $6,359 per cell that has put in that is going to be put into salaries of teachers and so it you know that will vary slightly across across districts but our negotiations teams and those that work on salary and benefits at the school district level will be able to, they're going to have a larger pot of money with that which to pay educators and then of course our certified that that's for certified but our classified staff those who are paraprofessionals bus drivers cooks you know janitors those sorts of things there was uh, additional money put into classified because again what public often doesn't know is to make up the difference in the salaries for classified they had to go to levies they had to levy the community to get additional funds supplemental levy to pay for staff so we put more money into staffing which i'm i'm grateful for and you had asked um, some of the failures or some of the things that were, were challenges. I think all throughout the session, the continued challenge um, for me was fighting false narrative and fighting the attacks on public schools um, where uh, library bills, various library bills coming forward saying that we had pornographic material you know, in, in our classrooms and in our libraries and in our local public libraries. Um, that was something that happened just yesterday where we were able to sustain the veto of the governor that overturned that what would have been law um, and potentially create a target on our schools and libraries for, you know, those civil cause of action, $2,500 for every incident and it makes me it makes me sad that so many people in the community have subscribed to a narrative, a narrative being pushed by special interest groups outside of Idaho, um, dark money groups, that there is something nefarious happening in our instruction and with our books that breaks my heart. And so I'm assuming we'll continue to see policy brought forward in that regard. But we were able when we're looking at public schools and what they do and who they serve, we saw several, I think we had seven different ESA or, you know, voucher bills come forward that wants to allow public funds to go to private institutions. So we were able to hold that at bay for this year, but we know those will be com coming back again. So the work continues, I think, 
more so I'd love to see some pro, you know, pro public narrative coming out of what we do, you know, for schools and the in the legislature. I, it's it's easy to focus on on the negative, but we do so many good things and really public schools are a cornerstone in communities across Idaho. So we want to make sure we continue to support them. And I'm wondering what some of your biggest takeaways or things that you learned from this session are just as a new legislature, legislator, sorry. And um, if you've already started formulating some goals for next session or if, if you're not quite there yet. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I'm already thinking for the next session and, and what, what we need to do in particular, you know, coalitions and who we can work with. Um, a, a big takeaway, and I think I've mentioned it a few times during the conversation, is how much influence there is outside of the state, how much influence comes in from non-Idaho organizations, from non-Idahoans that influence our policy and laws. I think I knew it existed, but I didn't realize to the extent that those entities and groups are literally writing the bills that will become law. And so you'll have in committee hearings, people defer to, you know, legislators who have to bring forward the bill, but defer to the person who actually wrote it and have them come up and speak where they are not a local. <laughs> they're not, they're people that have interests and serve interests that are outside of the state of Idaho. I think that was really eye-opening for me. There's something uh, in the Legislative Service Office, so LSO, if you are going to have someone help you write your bill, which makes sense, we all, you know, lean on experts in the field and make sure we're writing our policy the best it can be. There's something called a purple slip, right? So it allows someone to come in and help you to write the bill. But there are legislators elected in Idaho that sign purple slips by the bucket to have folks write policy for them. And they're just running policy on behalf of an outside group. That's a problem to me. I think that's really unfortunate. And if those were public, because they're not, if you had to put the name of every person or group or entity that actually helped you write this proposed policy, I think that would be really interesting to the state of Idaho, to our citizens. If that transparency existed, like who's actually writing these words or what interest groups are actually trying to bring this policy forward? I wish that. I wish that were more transparent. So that was a big eye opener for me. Um, but one thing that I take heart and that was a really, I think, filled my bucket throughout the legislative session was that there are people that are there in the House and in the Senate that want to do the work of the people and not just in my caucus, right? The Democrats, they're a small group <laughs> on the House and the Senate side. But there are folks that we were able to do work with and have good conversations. And even though we maybe didn't always see it eye to eye, there was a group of people there that wanted to do best by Idahoans and wanted to bring forth good policy and were, were willing to compromise and, and work together. And so I was grateful for that group that was there because it has to be a cooperative effort, right? 
no one party can do all of the work. And so I was grateful to set aside party affiliations sometimes and just do the work of the people. What is it that would bring tax relief or help or opportunity to Idahoans? And so I, I'm still grateful for those relationships that I've be, you know, begun to develop and, um, and real friendships really starting to see that we're, we're not so different. We really aren't. So, well, thanks for sharing all that. Um, so I wanted to move on to another topic from the legislature, and it pertains to another story I'm working on, which is about how Latinas are especially underrepresented in education leadership positions. And so I wanted to talk to you about that, and I'll be kind of focusing on Latina principles. Mm -hmm. Um, and you are, you have a doctorate, right? I do. But are you interested in ever becoming an administrator or do you see yourself staying in a teaching role? I never really have had interest in administration because it took me away from kids. So, and, and not that they're that far. I mean, they're literally in the school full of kids and I understand that some of my best administrators and the principals I respect the most, including Dr. Brendifer, who is from Chile, you know, from a Latina that serves as such an incredible example here in my school, it still, it felt like one step further away from the classroom and from in directly impacting a, a child's life. And I didn't want to do that. I'm not ready to do that. I, I, got my doctorate in education uh, for lots of reasons, but I'm first generation high school graduate. Neither of my parents graduated from high school. So I kind of always knew I'd go all the way. I just knew, I just knew because like on behalf of everybody, if that makes sense, like the people who got me here, the sacri sacrifices my parents made for my aunts and uncles who were migrant workers in the field and couldn't make it past second or third grade because they needed to work, I was gonna go all the way on behalf of everybody in the Galavis family. And so I'm grateful to do that. And, but when it comes to leaving the classroom and leaving kids, I don't, I don't know if I'm quite ready for that. I'm, I'm just getting started, I'm 20 years in and I, I still love um, so deeply what I do and the connections I have with kids. And that's what's really edifying and keeps me here is that I can point to the good that we do every day. Every day matters. I mean, and I hope other professions can say that, but to be able to point to, to progress and point to how you affect change every day, I can still do that as a teacher. So for now, I'll stay. So... Dr. Brendifer, on her path to an education leadership position, she had some key moments in her life where people said to her, like, I see more in you. I believe in you. You should get your master's degree. You should get your doctorate. You should become a principal. And those were really timely and directed the path of her life. But it sounds like for you, your path to the top was really internally driven. Like you just had a spark or a fire and you just wanted to get there. Does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, I'm so, I'm so grateful for 
some of the examples that I've had in my professors at Boise State. I mean, I grew up on Boise State campus. I'm a triple Bronco. My bachelor's, my master's, and my doctorate were through the College of Education at Boise State. And so there was a time during my education to where Dr. Brendifer and I were in the same classes doing the same thing. So it was a small group of us, you know, going through and we helped each other for sure. And it was nice to be able to relate to others with similar backgrounds of underrepresented, you know, communities. And we became very tight knit. I was attending Boise State back when bilingual education had its own department. I mean, so we became like family and really helping each other um, and, and leaning into each other that we might be able to take the next class or find the funding because a lot of us were young mothers or I mean I had I did all of this with a toddler and an infant you know on my hip bringing them to class and just that network I'm so grateful for that so I've had great mentors and cheerleaders along the way but as far as someone and you know inspiring me to go on it was it was a lot of my my own family just that ideology of like si se puede you're like yes you can just keep going and I just took it a day at a time sometimes where I it was, it was hard, but I, I just had that drive and I understood deeply what education does for generations, right? So for my father being a migrant worker with a limited education, once I got through and got my bachelor's and then decided to keep going on, I knew the shift that that would create for my own children. And so my daughter recently graduated from University of Utah and now in one generation, we've, we've turned the tide, right? Where it's, it's not even, you won't, she will never second guess that that's what was meant for her because she grew up hearing that language of possibility spoken in the home. And now if she chooses to have children, now we've turned the tide towards access and opportunity and through education. And so I'm, I, I suppose there was an internal drive. I just, I, I, I'm just hungry for what is the next thing that's going to help my community? What is the next thing that's going to help public schools? And where does my, where's my place and all of that? And it, the universe continues to send me down, down these roads and who am I to, who am I to fight it if there's still work to be done? So I'll continue on this path. Mm -hmm. And even though you're not like a principal or a superintendent, you're definitely in an education leadership position as a legislator, who ran on a focus of education, right? And you're mm -hmm. on the, the education committee. Mm -hmm. um, so why do you think for other Latinas, they're not as seen in these education leadership positions? Like we have um, a number of Latina students in Idaho. And if you look at the numbers, they're not represented in education leadership. So sure. what barriers might there be for other people? Well, you have the, you know, the adage, you've got to see it to be it. So a lot of it where we maybe haven't seen Latinas in leadership positions, or if we're talking specifically in education where you rarely have a Latina principal. So I, again, when I talk about the universe thread together, some of the opportunities to allow Latinas to take that next step in their career, I find it very fortunate that my current principal 
is a Latina, is from, you know, an immigrant family that the position I needed a principal to extend grace to me that I was going to step out for an, an entire quarter of the school year to be able to do this thing at the legislature. So it's no accident that Fernanda, she sought me out to bring me in knowing that she would have a part-time employee. There's no other way to say it, that you know, that I would have to leave for a certain amount of time, but her support allows me to do this work. And so that relationship, knowing that sometimes it may take sacrifice or take some creativity in designing roles or, or those opportunities, she allowed that for me. And so that's something we don't often see modeled with other Latinas that are, and there are several in this building that now she and I are trying to encourage into leadership positions because we're she's doing that for me. Someone did it for us in one way or another. So now trying to model what that's like, but it has to be really deliberate. It's not something that just, just happens. No one's going to lay down the red carpet for us to either access leadership positions or get the next break or be able to go back to school. So that really, for it to come about organically within our community, within the Latina community, we're trying to help each other find those access points, but it often, the, the barriers are significant, either from childcare or funding to be able to access the additional education or just someone letting, letting you know that that next break is out there or that there is training and support. And so I'm grateful to my teachers association, the Idaho Education Association that has a lot of those internal leadership training that we've been able to get some of our Latina educators here sent to, you know, um, national trainings and going to delegate assembly. And now I'm taking one fourth grade teacher um, with me where she's going to the largest assembly of representative assembly of the National Education Association in Florida to be able to get that additional leadership training and opportunity that she can be the next generation of those who are mentoring others. So, but we need more of us doing it, period. Um, you know, the colleges and universities don't have a lot of internal structure anymore, Boise State included. There's no longer a bilingual education department. It's been folded into, folded into, you know, other curricular programs. And so we need that institutional support and internal organization that we are deliberately growing our own. We're going into the communities where, and it starts in education, we can be doing that with our paraprofessionals. There's quite a few classified staff that are Latinas that, but they need some support. They're working, they're working moms. So to be able to continue their education, we got to do something because right now student teachers aren't paid. So how do we help support those those women who want to go on, who want to be given that opportunity, but either financially can't do it or there are other barriers. I'd love to see us work deliberately on that to minimize those barriers to create access mm -hmm. for those that are already in the schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for that perspective and the ideas you have for breaking barriers down. I think that brings us to a close here. I really appreciate your perspective on teaching, the legislature. Um, is there anything else that you want to add? No, I'm grateful for the invitation. Thanks for highlighting the, you know, the need for Latinas in leadership and highlighting the various supports and, and 
the efforts that are, are made now and we've got a ways to go, but I think there's great things being done. And if we can support those efforts, we'll, we'll be better for it. And Idaho schools will be better for it. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Teacher's Lounge podcast. And don't forget to go to idahoednews.org for all the latest. Have a great week.